Tony Stark built this in a cave with a box of scraps. That's a spoiler, and you're going to hear more. Hello and welcome back to Bardic Community College. You're joining us for our very first literature review. Today we're going to be talking about Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book. I'm Derek. And this is Jordan. And joining us for the first time is our uh, special guest, Adam. And this is Adam. So, Adam's a good friend of ours. We talk shop a lot about role-playing games uh, film and other stuff, and we decided to invite him to talk about the Graveyard Book. Um, we're all fans of Neil Gaiman here at Bardic Community College. He's, I, I, I would probably argue, one of the one of the greatest fantasy storytellers of our time, and I don't think that's an understatement. Uh, I mean, I'll I'll just throw Pratchett out there and fight you, but I get what you're trying to get to, you know, get at. I said one of. All right. All right. I gotcha. I have to agree. Anyhow. He has a style of storytelling that seems to have connected, and a lot of the things that he's written now, besides winning awards repeatedly, end up connecting with people. And so a lot of his works end up being a part of someone's life, even if it's not the same work for individuals. Very well said. Um,. I first started reading Gaiman, I want to say my first book with him was either Coraline or Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. It was one of the two. Uh, mine was easily, I'm relatively sure my first Gaiman was um, American Gods and then Anansi Boys. And then I sort of had to rebroach a lot of his young adult stuff because, uh, you know, being a little older than Derek, it sort of like the timing is different. Like, I think mm-hmm. did Stardust come out before Coraline, Adam? Yes, like pretty significantly, I would imagine. Stardust came out in the end of the nineties. Okay, that makes sense. So I, I, it's very possible that I read Stardust first. Yeah, Stardust came out during Sandman. Oh yeah, that would make more sense. Well, okay, so if we're being honest, my first exposure <laughs> to Neil Gaiman is Sandman. The comic series, and if you haven't read that, you have to do yourself a favor because it is amazing. So my first experience with Gaiman was Sandman, and I didn't know that it was Gaiman, or I didn't never heard of him before. And then I didn't ever hear anything about him for a really long time. And then I picked up Good Omens, um, and that led to American Gods. And then I picked up Stardust on a whim one day. Um, it's surprising how many of his stories end up transversing over to um, the comic medium. So like Stardust was first a book. Uh, it's true for Caroline. It's true for Death, High Cost of Living. Um, like it's, a, it's surprising how many creative people end up getting his story and then taking that and trying to make it something that's visual. Well, I mean, he started... I, I think... It evokes he evokes imagery like that. That's a very weird way of putting it, but he paints a good word picture. 
He's very good at very quickly sussing out a bunch of details about a situation and letting you kind of and letting you go from there. And I think that's you know it's it's true of most authors. It's what it's what makes for good storytelling, and it's you immediately get. Um, I think I can't think of any one of his books where the sense of place or setting wasn't immediately clear from around from you know from every work it always felt important and american gods is probably i think the most like i think that one has the most you know for it's very important where everything is taking place um Um, i can agree with it i think neverwhere has its own character but they're also sort of making the city itself a character now i will say i have not i neverwhere is probably the only one of his early stuff i haven't read I believe we could wax poetic on Neil Gaiman for quite a while. Uh, yeah. What we're all trying to say in the end is, uh, if you have never experienced Neil Gaiman, give it a try. He's in multiple mediums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a bad one to run into. Comic novel, um, even American Gods has been syndicated for TV, and I think the Good Omens miniseries is out soon. Yes, it? it starts April, or does it, is it out right now? Uh, I think it's, it's yeah, I don't think it's out yet. I think it's in the next two or three weeks. But yeah, and I'm sure all of us are falling apart over that one because like Terry Pratchett's my home dog. <laughs> um, but yeah. so graveyard book. So it's a young adult novel. Um, Adam did us a favor and actually picked up uh, the awards it won at the time, um, which are a lot. Um, so mm-hmm. it did the John Newberry Medal, uh, the Audie Award for children's titles ages 8 to 12, Hugo Award for the best novel, uh, Sybil's Award for fantasy and science fiction. And like all of these are, they're young adult novels don't normally get tossed into these, but Neil Gaiman sort of has that magic about him. Um, you've got the Locus Award for best young adult book. Obviously, YA is there. Uh, the Carnegie Medal is really the impressive one, honestly. Mm hmm. Sci-fi award for best. In. Did he win it two years running? Two years in, Carnegie Medal wasn't awarded for two years, so the book came out in two thousand eight, and the Carnegie Medal wasn't awarded to two thousand ten. So it actually had staying power enough to stay on the stands long enough to be eligible. Oh, that's wild! I didn't know that. Yeah, I like um, when I was in uh, when I was in high school. I actually got this book uh, for free because we won book club that year, and I walked away with a big stack of like best-selling young adult novels and this was in there and this is in 2011 or 2012 so this book was this was a big deal (laughs) it absolutely Uh, and uh anybody who decides to pick it up you can pick this book up in as a in print obviously there's two audio versions there's one written by or read by neil gaiman and then there's one that's actually read by a cast of people and there's a comic version of it oh i didn't know they had put out a comic for it man th- it's really bizarre how often multimedia neil gaiman gets mm-hmm. um so and obviously 2011 or 12 or whenever was the first time i read it uh while i was still in high school um and i and this is after having read a lot of his other stuff including more adult work so Getting into this at the time, I was, you know, I I was 
pretty enamored with it. I remember afterwards, and but it, it definitely is not the book that I immediately, I guess, go back to for Game Man. There's other stuff I pick up and read again and again. So rereading it a little bit in time for this commentary um, remind me of a lot of the really cool things about it, for sure. What was your yeah. first time reading it, Adam? Uh, I probably read it back in 2011, 2012. Um, I picked it up because I had started knowing who Neil Gaiman was, um, and I was starting voraciously reading everything he had. And it opened up a, on a uh, list of greatest story openings of all time. It was on a top ten list. Um, and I think that's worth mentioning. Like This book starts, um, interestingly, uh, I actually pulled it up. Um, the first yeah. couple, the first paragraph is there was a hand in the darkness and it held the knife. The knife had a handle of polished black bone and a blade finer and sharper than any razor. If it sliced you, you might not even know you had been cut. Not immediately. Um, and that's not normally how Gaiman books open. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a way to start anything. Um, we, we had a little bit of a discussion about um, the approach of uh, the dark or morbidity um, when it comes to young adult novels and the the field at the time you know you had the burgeoning like Harry Potter had just got I believe when did the last book for Harry Potter come out? Seven. Oh, seven. 2007 so it's still mm-hmm. sort of writing on the back end of that you had the, the Twilight Sagas you had all of that stuff that was really breaking open the weirdness in young I can't, adult I can't novels. imagine how much like how many young adult novels i read for that book club (laughs) and how many like god there's some absolute trash in that but we're uh but there was some there was some diamonds in the rough for sure i will i will be the first to say i it's easy to make fun of young adult novels but there are some damn good books in there yeah and i think uh so my first time reading it uh was today (laughs) um i i believe through about 130 or 100 about 110 of the 140 pages because i haven't we talked about doing this um a couple of weeks ago and i haven't had any downtime to actually do it so i ate the bare share of the book in like two sittings um and it's definitely knowing that it's a young adult book and going into it with like the suspension of disbelief like i know this is written for a different audience than the people that are reading it um, you can still get a lot out of the book. Like it still has the, the classic game and reading. And like Adam, uh, when he did the opening, it's uh, all of the wording is very deliberate. Um, it, it's multi-meaning it's layered. You always get something from it. Uh, I think regardless of the time or age you're reading it. I agree completely. As the person who has most recently read it, do you, uh, and I believe this is the point where Derek will start saying spoilers. Uh, how about a quick summary of the book? Yeah. Um, so just the, just the like the complete spoiler-free version of it before I before we get into a big oh. spoiler tags. Okay. Uh, so the spoiler-free is it's about a, a set of murders from a family, <laughs> where the toddler goes completely missing. Uh, the murderer uh, does not know this. And the toddler gets sort of adopted by a graveyard, uh, i.e. the people buried there, i.e. the ghosts. E a bunch of dead people. Um, and so it sort of goes including... through his... Yeah. Uh, and there's there's a little more supernatural. Like there, there's a, a, a werewolf, there's a vampire, there's a, a mummy at one point. 
which isn't, uh, and, which is only mentioned like Ifrit. once. Yeah, and an Ifrit. Don't forget that. Yeah, like, the, there's Ifrit, a, the Ifrit has like two there's sentences. A, there's a whole Dungeons and Dragons crew somewhere, <laughs> like doing stuff. But that's like there's a bunch of little supernatural stuff going on at this graveyard. They communitively adopt the boy, and from there, it's kind of a series of. Vignettes is maybe the right, not quite the right word, but of you know him growing up and the incredible things that happened to him and how he kind of learns from situations. So this and, is actually oh, I didn't go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, and Gaiman during one of his awards uh, acceptances talks about that this is his first foray into trying to sell say a arcing story like to create a narrative um where each individual thing each individual chapter um is sort of its own story and if you go through the chapters that's really what this is this is also kind of the first foray he's ever had into um creating a theme towards his short stories which is what fragile things turns out to be yeah Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's overall like the, the the assassin who's there for the baby kills everyone but the baby um like the other the other thing that he's trying to turn on his head here is um the monsters are all the good guys there's there's no there's not a single monster turns out to be bad no uh, not a, there's no supernatural force well that's the, the really ghouls maybe are the definitely, ghouls yeah the ghouls are definitely the, actually that's definitely, the ghouls that's are mindless yeah the, well and there's let's let's not get into either you know the sleer which whatever the fuck that is but that's you know so let's are, save the sleer because the sleer is going to come up yeah. i'm sure quite a bit um but that's what it is. It is a little boy growing up in a graveyard being raised by the uh, monsters and the undead that live there as a loving little family. And in the end, a, the uh, what he finds out about how he was born and how he came to be where he is and the repercussions of it. Um, and that's about as spoiler-free and... as we're going to get. Yeah. So... Now, let's dig into spoilers. Now we get spoilers. <laughs> so, um, I guess we'll kind of look at it per chapter. Um, so, Derek, go ahead and kind of start with the opening. Like, what did you like about, what did you guys like about the theming? Like, how did it open so, compared to a lot of other novels? Okay, so, I wish I had a, I should have grabbed a big stack of gaming books to, like, c- compare this to. But the novel starts off about as dark as any uh about as dark as any kind of book i've ever read where it starts with two people getting murdered and their baby and their baby escaping while a serial killer tries to track down well, he's not he's not even just a serial well, he's kind of a serial killer but point being he starts trying to track him down and through chance the baby ends up in this graveyard <laughs> um so Along that path, we have um, it's it's you know it immediately switches from kind of a wow th- like <laughs> that's a hell of a way to start a novel into well e- everything's gonna be okay you know the the murderer immediately gets turned away and um, the boy is adopted by the spirits that inhabit this graveyard and there are a lot of them. You know, there's everything from a Roman, uh, there's like a, there's some kind of Roman general who got buried, who was like buried here. There's a, 
Um, mostly, it seemed like the most most of the inhabitants were like fifteenth to eighteenth century folks. That's when it seems the majority of the graveyard is. And thankfully, the graveyard itself is a protected spot, thanks to uh, I think it is a a historical site or something. So it is a safe space. And immediately the um, the boy is named uh, Nobody Owens, and under care of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Owens. I'm trying to remember their names. Um, and he is only kept there because of a lady on the gray um, appears on a horse and tells the ghost not to let him, not to take him away. Well, she says something about. Um... She has a really specific line when she shows up, um, like the dead are always favorable or something like that. What is it she says? Uh, well, I can probably find it. Give me a second. Yeah, the dead. Uh, the dead should have charity. Yeah, that's what it was. The dead should have charity. Yeah. Which so is that's a- something that I noticed about this book. Um, like, so there's a couple other sayings and poems and quotes that have tied into this. Um, like, mm-hmm. so the lady in gray, like the lady in gray, she could be a female or a more accepting representation of death. Um, and she's such a minor, if impactful, character throughout the book, you never really learn more about her um, or what she is. But she can stand for the transitioning of life into death. And that's why she's here, because these people have not transitioned. And that's why she keeps. That's why she shows up in the Dance Macabre later on. Yeah, and it's it's a it's an interesting character, and I think um, we we have to backpedal a little bit. So the modern setting, I believe, is supposed to be at least mostly modern parallel, like late two thousands, early twenty tens. I think is when they're trying to set it because they mentioned early, maybe maybe like night, maybe starting maybe like in the late nineties at the worst because they mentioned like cell it's, phones, they mentioned computers. Like it's at least often enough that it's definitely a modern. It's definitely a modern. Yeah, world. like and they they use the words computers and phones enough uh casually later on in like the school chapter where you assume that it's an everyday thing so it's definitely like at the worst the late 90s um yeah when it starts absolutely um uh, also scarlet's reading manga so that seems like that's a pretty i think it hit <laughs> for, in england yeah. before it hit in america um so like in chapter one we meet Silas. Or Silas, depending Silas. on how you want to pronounce it. Um, I'm going to continually pronounce it wrong throughout, but there it is. Well, we're just going to um, swap it just to make it a pain in the ass. Absolutely. Just be annoying. Um, <laughs> like we also meet like the so in book in chapter one we also meet Josiah Worthington, and he's actually the guy who created the cemetery. And from what I can remember of this book, he is extremely powerful for a regular ghost he's the one who stops jack and he tells jack that jack will not remember the graveyard and he's the one who kicks jack out yeah and then you never hear about josiah ever again yeah <laughs> yeah there's a there's a lot of touch and go for these really weird lodestone kind of characters and so that's actually kind of leading into what we were talking about how these are his um like these are his short stories it's like so each of the chapters has a specific name, right? So um, mm-hmm. chapter one, how nobody came to the graveyard. And chapter two, pull the book out, the new friend. friend. Right? And, 
Um, Three, the Hounds of God. Four, the, the Witch's, Witch's Headstone. Headstone. Which was honestly, mm-hmm. besides the Dance Macabre, probably like the Dance Macabre was kind of weak overall, but the Witch's Headstone was definitely probably my favorite chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, the Intervention, or sorry, the Interlude. Um, exploring outside the graveyard, Every Man Jack, which we'll get to, um, and then the uh, Nobody, last chapter. Uh, leavings and partings. You got, there was also, I think, Nobody Owens School Days. Yes, that's a uh, post-interlude, so that's like right before yeah. sort of the denouement. So, yeah, that's chapter like six. Um, yeah. 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 There's only uh, eight. It's so, 140 pages. Like it's You're going to read it in a sitting or two. It is not long. Yeah, and each chapter is pretty long. Um, I, I do think it is probably one of those. It is a great. I think this would be a really good book for like if you're a parent and you have a like a kid that you read to, to just do like one chapter a night, like treat it like that kind of thing. And because uh, it is because every every chapter is its own kind of self-contained thing. They even like kind of advance in age slowly throughout it. So mm-hmm. it's oh it yeah, works really well in that regard. One and he's like chapter he's like four or eight in chapter two. Yeah, um, yeah. He's, he's literally like not two years old in the first chapter when he like wanders out of the house and rolls down the road to the graveyard. <laughs> well, it yeah. Which what I like is I like how and this is something that Pratchett does too is they have this kind of like children don't understand like children are so naive that they don't have any idea or maybe not naive but unlearned. And so, he, like, Bod just kind of accepts everything in the graveyard as being normal and not, like, getting terrified of it, even, you know, because he doesn't, like, know any better. Like, uh, tabla rasa, as it were. Yeah. Um, so, but that's actually, like, what makes the magic work, right? So they discuss giving him the freedom of the graveyard. So they allow him to, which is what lets him see in the dark and talk to the undead and whatnot. That's also what kind of keeps him in the graveyard. Um, and then, spoilers, at the end of the book, when he's leaving, like he's losing that ability because now he's 15, and um, the way Pratchett writes it, sort of puberty is onsetting, and the graveyard the graveyard people pretty much like, well, you're an adult now, good the fuck luck, and they throw you out. Yeah, yeah. they just throw, <laughs> well, they I just mean, throw there was, them out. There's also kind of like... Uh, everything in its time is a very important theming in the book. Like everything happens specifically sort of in a row. And as which, he's leaving, it's, it's very which, deliberate. Why? Which 2005, 2010, which is where we are about this time frame. Um, like, you know, good luck. Good luck being on your own at 15. In, in the, in the, uh, in the 2000 knots, you're just like, good luck yeah. fucker. You're like, boy, I hope you don't run into some chavs. Yeah. Oh, by the way, <laughs> There's this thing that the ghost never got you. It's called a uh, identification card. Uh, it, I, I thought he, I thought he got him a passport. He does get him a passport. He does. He's a passport. <laughs> and then you're sitting there like, how in the world did you get that? He's a All vampire. Right, well, Silas is a vampire. He does what he wants. All right. Yes, he's the Silas is the best. <laughs> so. All right. So Silas is one of the main the major characters. Um, the Owens are the good stalwart parents, and they're parents. just air. That's all they and are. They um, really don't do a lot. <laughs> so no, no they, and they do. They're really. It's, it's very specific, and it's only in a couple of chapters. Like they exist purely as the sort of the emotional comeback. Like, hey, by the way, we're your parents, and they sort of throw it back every couple of episodes too. 
But it, it, it's like fun. they show up enough that you don't forget them, but it's just like like Josiah Worthington. But at the same time, they don't really they don't um, they don't really have any major roles. I think in the actual conflicts beyond, I guess, the first chapter. Right, the moral center. But and this is honestly a criticism, especially for an author we all like, that the Owens who do play a pretty big part in his life as are very as, thin as yeah. his as his adoptive parents like as yeah. his actual adoptive parents yeah they, Although, have, they have a very it, brisk uh, moment well at the same time it is very clear though that silas is the real parent i think because he's the one that actually goes out and gets food and stuff for him <laughs> like he does all the material raising Puppy. of the boy but being undead, he cannot love them. So he. His, I don't. His, I, I. I. don't think. I don't think that's true at all. I think but, Silas. I think Silas loves him. I just don't think Silas has the 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 emotional warmth that is required for a child. That's fair. He yeah, doesn't I think, have very I think much. That's pretty he doesn't. He, he doesn't have much warmth in general. <laughs> he doesn't have the guts for it. So, um, <laughs> like, so if we break these down by chapters, like, let's talk chapter two. So chapter two is the new friend, um, and a little girl in the neighborhood starts playing in the graveyard. In the and she like you do. is alive. Uh, what's alive! her name? Scarlet. Scarlet. Okay. Um, so like they start playing together, and they start wandering around, and like he gets and a they find, friend, and they find an old tome, an uh, old tomb that belongs to like the Sleer. This, like an like I don't even remember like a like a barbarian or something like a very very old old it's pre-Celt so like they don't even yeah. ever really tell you like yeah he gets to the tomb like and the Sleers aren't even the person like that Sleers are the the guards um, yeah it's right? like this weird eldritch thing right watching they, over right and they start talking about um like how he's like what happens what'll happen if you find your master because. The tomb's empty. Yeah, except well, for there's a, a knife, there's a, 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 a knife, a, a brooch, and oh, a cup. Sh- yeah. Right, so there's stuff in there, but the tomb is empty, and they're waiting for their master. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really big, which is important, because later on, like, that, that's quite literally the pivot for this book. Yeah, they um, get a master. Yeah, they, they do indeed. And he goes, he says, uh, like, what? Like, what would you do if your master was here? And then they're like, well, we would hold him and protect him forever and ever and ever. And I was like, that's not creepy. Um, and because she's gone, like, at the end of the chapter, Scarlet's parents move away and take her with. And she's to just like, Scotland. Well, they fuck yeah. off to Scotland. And maybe, she became, maybe she became the new Pokemon trainer. No, she comes back. Um, so, like, they, they, they head off to Scotland, which we will just call the other for now. Um, and then... Not, not even Silas wants to go to Scotland. Right, and so, like, chapter two is kind of a continuation of chapter one. It was, like, chapter one, like, here is, the th- here is what initiated my story. Chapter two is I am now old enough that there can be a story. And then chapter three is his first... Yeah. Yeah, chapter yeah. three though is his first short story, right? So chapter three is so, and we have to talk about this at some point, and we'll probably get more into this uh, after we finish with plots. With plot thinking about is this is a blatant analog to the Jungle Book, 
Like, uh-huh. completely so. And it is um, deliberately said. He, even Neil Gaiman is like, yeah, I was trying to do the Jungle Book. Like, he says it, he admits to it. And yeah, honestly, it's a, it's a good, it's a good it's modern a good, parallel. It's very good. It, it reminds me of in the same way as something like, say, um, you get, like, modern retellings of things like Macbeth. like, Or you get, or like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah, or different takes on, like, you know, there's... You know, yeah, taking the same basic beats and true. putting it to a new set, uh, and taking it to a new setting. Um, everything is Hamlet. The end. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, but everything should be Macbeth because that's the better play. Don't at me. Um, anyway, <laughs> but this is probably, I think, where it is most blatant that it is a Jungle Book parallel because it is it is pretty much exactly in the same. It is pretty much. Um, a direct riff on the story, the stories of the Jungle Book, where Ka first shows up and where um, Mowgli interacts with the meets the. I think they're called the Banderlog, but I could be totally wrong. Um, which are like this whole like ape society, um, and he basically basically the same things happen where Mowgli gets like, oh, this you know this ape society is fun. They're doing whatever, and. Um, then he he ends up infuriating some, them somehow and has to be saved. In this one, or in the graveyard book specifically, uh, nobody Owens is um, gets a guardian in place of Silas while he's off doing something else. Uh, Miss you know, Lupus vampire shit. Yeah, doing lamp. You know, he had to go to his vampire the masquerade. Uh, you know, <laughs> his LARP, LARP. group. Yeah. Um, so he gets a new guardian named Mrs. Lupuscu, and he immediately does not like her. Well, I mean, she she's... cooks horrible food, and she yeah. makes a memory. She's, she's like, like a hippie. I think that's the joke, well, partially. Well, she's kind of like the old Jewish grandmother, kind of. like. She's, she's... like a she's like a very stern hippie. who She's like... a lot more firmer than Silas, and she's a lot less forgiving in him sort of in waving teaching. off his yeah. his yeah. learns. Yeah, and like her lessons are the worst case of MacGuffinism I've ever seen. Oh my god. god. Like well, you will learn so... how to call for help in every language. It, it, like, including Night Gone. <laughs> like like my, my favorite thing about that though is it's just like, like how by the way, about that it came back and it ended up being really helpful. But the cool part about that is like by the way, Bod, you're a total All right everyone Listen to your teachers. Yeah, like, Bod, you're a total fuck-up. We're going to need you to figure out how to call help in every language because you're really yeah. bad at this. Every single one. Like, And so uh, the too-long-didn't read of this is, and it, we've already alluded to it, is, uh, like, he walks off frustrated, falls asleep, some ghouls find him. Those would be the monkeys in our in our yeah. allegory here. Um, like, he starts partying with them a little bit. They then swarm him, and they try to either... It's not clear. They're either making him a ghoul they're or too, they're going to uh, eat him. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then so he sees above him the night gaunt and calls for help. And they come down and they rescue him. And they take him to Miss Loopsku, who is, surprise, a werewolf. <laughs> Hound of God. Yes. <laughs> She is. She's a like. She's part of the hound. <laughs> like you read it, and it's almost like, uh, like the Blues Brothers are saying, like we're hounds from God. Like it's just so dry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like she's on a mission from God. Like 
So this being written for young adults, like twelve year old me would have rolled my eyes real hard. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean, fifteen year old Derek, I remember it was like, oh, <laughs> I like how the night gaunts are just like giant weird bat creatures that swoop down to help, but are actually bros. Like that's. The... <laughs> yeah. I remember finding that really amusing. And then, like every other, you know, teen rom com, at the end of this, he really likes her because you know. He didn't become ghoul food thanks to her. Yeah, he'd like, like her to come back. And I was like, I was like, end of chapter three, and I was like, this was not the best I've ever read. Yeah, uh, it's a little weak. Um, um, uh, so chapter four, and so there. Obviously, you're getting a theme here. Like every chapter is a lesson. Don't fuck up. Learn how to help yourself. Don't fuck up. Bod, you're a fuck up. Stop fucking up. Like, learn, that's learn to call. Learn to call for help in every language, yeah, like including ones that don't exist. If that hasn't been hammered into you yet, um, he gets a. I think chapter four is where you start to see Bod kind of grow into his own. So the witch's headstone is he runs into a witch, a, a, a young a witch, a witch. Bod, um, he runs into a younger witch out on the other side of the graveyard. That's not well gravestoned. So there are ghosts here, but a lot of them like are. She specifically doesn't have a great Yeah. Stuff. Like, and they're. And, Le- yeah. Uh, so when they hunger name? or. Uh, Liz? Is Lisa, it Liza? Yeah. Liza? Elizabeth. Elizabeth Hemstock. Yeah, uh, there you go. Like, she, like, so, you know, she was accused of being a witch and then she was drowned and burned. Surprise. Which is really witch. interesting because England specifically never had that happen. Yeah, which was. I would thought that was funny. That was like, wait a second. They didn't um, do that. Like, like. The, like it's one of the very, it's one of the things that they're really proud of. Like, yeah, we may have enslaved a lot of nations, but uh, like we never burned slaves or witches in our backyard. <laughs> and they go, backyard. they go out of the way <laughs> to sort of make this the like the mat- the maturation, like the quasi puberty for Bod, because like Cause, yeah, because this is where he steals, steals the ring. Yeah, and she is described I very mean, deliberately I mean, as attractive yeah. and thin wearing. So like. She's probably a pretty hot ghost. I didn't get that. So I like, re- I just he... read it. <laughs> so if I remember right, doesn't she get upset when he's like, or like broody, or like, like whatever, when he's like a fourteen or fifteen year old, and he's got to leave the graveyard? Uh, like... They have a they have a very overtly sexual, not sexual moment at the very end. That's like very pubescent. So this is like. Moving out of the like the the weird line that that makes it that way, um, like this is however how he reconnects his stories back to his over his arc, right? Yeah. So he steals the ring from the the Sleer's the den, Sleer. and then um, he he leaves the he leaves the graveyard without permission. Oh, there's a so the Sleer specifically said as in reference to the three items is they always come back. And you read that in the last chapter, and you're like, all right, sure, whatever. And Adam will kind of go into this, but it's a really weird kind of boomerang thing. So, like, he goes in, and he goes to a pawn shop to try to sell it. And the pawn shop owner's like, Well, because he's trying to get a gravestone for right. Liza. For Lisa, yeah. Um, and so the pawn shop owner seeing it immediately realizes that this thing is priceless. Um and they, he and a buddy, remember? Like, there's a buddy, or there's it's yeah, two he, people, right? He calls and they in lock a guy up. who are not, who him and his friend are not, the most upstanding citizens. Yeah, it's very, it's very, um, Pulp Fiction, 
yes. the, with the Gimp Man. Um, <laughs> so, like, nothing like that happens if anybody wants to read it. Man, that, this would be a really different book. If oh, it did. yeah. Yeah. Um, like, so they... How does he end up escaping? Oh, Liza shows up, right? Yep, Liza shows up. Again, he is... He is the Mary. He is the not Mary Sue of his own story, which is yeah. beyond itself. <laughs> yeah. So Liza shows up and saves him. And he runs out with the ring because he has to return it because that's what the Sleers say. Um, and like a paperweight or something. And then he writes her initials on the paperweight, and and that's her gravestone. And that's yeah. that's it. That's, he, like, that's he, chapter like, four. He puts it by a bench or something, and she's super happy about it. And there's like some weird overt feelings i guess and bod doesn't realize it because he's a child but she's totally like I'm so i want to call like a i want to call an audible here all right so let's go back a little bit so in chapter three and this is kind of how even though this may not be one of his stronger works we can still talk about how game is pretty impressive so he goes into the slayers and there's these three items right and then when he goes to the witch's headstone they go that always comes back and all of the conversations with the slayers like make you lead you to believe how greedy these Sleer guardians are, um, and each of the items in here end up, with the exception of Bod, who has the protection of the graveyard, end up enticing a consuming greed in someone. Like so, the ring, like yeah, the pawn shot over may not be a good person, but like. These items, like, so now, no, you two knowing what happens in the end, and, and those who listen to this will hear, like, these items leading into that massive amount of greed are what eventually becomes, in the climax of this story, the downfall of the bad guy. This is also, by the way, at the end of chapter four, um, there's like a little thing that's not its own chapter, it's just like the very end, where um, because he has left the graveyard, Jack, who for all for no reason that is ever explained is magical, now knows that the boy is out there somewhere and he can start searching for him again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and and the killer in the beginning is referred to as the man Jack, and that becomes a theme and the reasoning for later comes out. But that's like he left the graveyard without permission for whatever reason the graveyard protection doesn't apply there and everybody on man Jack's side goes, Shucks, you should have killed that fucking baby. Yep. And Jack's like, well, I'm gonna, uh, but we'll get to the we'll get to the conclave. So because I can, I remember it happened, but it was boring enough that I can only say that much. You guys could talk about the dance macabre. I mean, this is probably the most inconsequential chapter in the book from a uh, narrative, I guess, perspective. Because I mean, really, all that happens is. Uh, the dead start leaving the graveyard one night mysteriously, and Bod doesn't know what's going on, so he follows them out to the city and sees them dancing with their loved ones while the lady on the gray rides around. Um, yeah, there's not not a whole lot consequential. So I, I don't think that's... There's nothing of consequence here, but there's something that sort of is recurrent. So this is sort of showing oh, from Bod a, tradition. Yeah. Like, this is something yeah. that has always happened. It's sort of like the brush with death. And I feel like this is more of the foreshadowing episode. Because um, he talks to the gray lady, and he he's like, hey, I want to go ride your horse. And she goes, you will one day, but that is not today. Yeah. So um, 
what was the the one thing that uh, God, that was said in this one? So in the Dance Macabre, um, everything in its season is kind of the recurring thing. And you notice that in every chapter, something very specific happens that could be alluded to, you know, not necessarily the hero's journey, but the growth of a young man. Um, True. So it does and have a reason. It's just not a very strong one. So, well, it's not even that. It's not that I don't think anyone's questioning the reasoning of it. I, I think I mean, people are questioning it. I mean, thematically, I don't have a problem with it. It's just, <laughs> it's definitely it the one. It, yeah, it's definitely the least consequential in terms of, I think, you know, I'm not even going to continue to get into that because it's not really a matter of importance whether or not it's consequential. <laughs> so let's talk about what it is, though. So the Dance Macabre yeah. is a very early um, representation of Neil Gaiman taking on a story that is not his and trying to spin it to be his own. And I think that this is a failure. Um, yeah, because this is supposed to this be is, Louis, right? Well, no, so well, the Dance Macabre was... is something that is that is a is a folk tale, yeah. um, and, and multitudes of it. But this is, if you look through his other stories, this is the origin of why now, a few years ago, um, Norse Gods comes out, where he oh, takes. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So, like, this is. And and he says it back in when he's re- winning rewards for it that, that this is his attempt to take short stories and build an, a literature to them. Um, and when he does that, like this is this is a folk tale. Dance Macabre is not his name. He didn't create that. Like it's a it's a folk tale throughout all of Europe, um, and there's different tellings of it. And it is truly that. It is the it is the day where the the dead and the the living meet again as, yes um and in the end the living at the end of the night the living go back to their days um and it, the 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 restless dead can rest again having seen their loves um and the dead remember and the and the living forget because that is the gift of life right and so that's really what happens and then i think we all agree that this is not a strong chapter I also think we can all agree that this is very much a... Oh, hey, Josiah Worthington is in it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, So, like, this is... Like, this this is a a glimpse of something that will come from the author someday in the future. And it does. It teaches Bod to grow. Um, Because at this point in in the story, like, this is a little boy who, outside of the dead has no interaction with And people. I think in this chapter he's 10? Yeah, he's about 10 I would guess. Yeah, I think it's I think they mentioned him being like a 10-year-old boy running down the hill now that I'm reading it. So like he's still significantly older than the last couple of chapters because I think almost every chapter jumps about 2 years, kind of give or take. Yeah. Yeah, give or take. Um the first chapter the first and second chapter jump jumps like 4. Yeah. Um, they have mm-hmm. to. Right? Well, I mean, um, what are you going to do, follow a toddler around a graveyard? Like, I don't feel like that's... <laughs> it's not compelling writing. You don't know me. Don't judge my life. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Neil Gaiman. So, <laughs> kind of like, then the next chapter is the concave, or the con- convocation? Yeah, that's the interview. Yeah, uh, so this is where the so, Jack people start talking. Right. So, and, uh, yeah, the serial killer is actually a part of a group of serial killers that are known as the Jack of All Trades. Or, sorry. Yeah, the Jack of All Trades, I believe. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's it. They also refer to themselves as something yes. else, but I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. It's weird that 
the assassins are all meeting at a banquet hall somewhat nearby. You mean um, like in on well, the Day of the Dead? Yeah. Like, yeah. To, it's like what, the convention what, in uh, the Sandman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, serial kill uh, the the serial convention. Um, <laughs> like, so. Yeah, exactly. Like so, there. This is happening, um, and, and it's certainly not original because you're right. The serial killer in the Sandman came out first, but oh, the this eyes. is happening at the same time of the Dance Macabre, and these guys have some sort of mystical abilities, as we find out later. Um, at least, at least, if nothing else, the ability to understand and guide themselves from afar towards their targets, um, and. <laughs> I like that they called uh, all the awards the good deeds done because they're murderers. Yep. And they have, um, so you have, uh, and they're all named specifically. Like, the reason they're the jack of all trades is because they are Jack X, Jack Underline. So, like, mm. there's Mr. Dandy, there's so, Mr. So, Frost, there's Mr. Bull, and they're all so Jack. Is, is Jack Nicholson a member of the jack of all trades? God, I hope so. Well, they don't name them, but if there's somebody who needs to be in that hundred men, I'm sure Jack Nicholson's one of them. Yeah, like I feel like if you were going to. And this is also when you find out that they're like that this that Bod or nobody was the actual target because there's some sort of prophecy. Um, he was he was the boy who lived. Yeah, he was. Uh, oh he God! <laughs> I didn't um, realize it. So, but. Like, he was the original target. And that's about all there really is to it, because this is this is only, like, two pages, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's very short. I think it's two and yeah. a half, maybe. Okay. And then chapter six is school days. Um, uh, so, nobody owns school days. Yeah, so Bod wants to go out into the world and learn people stuff, and everybody's like, this is a bad fucking idea, you shouldn't do this. And true to form, he does it anyway. It's kind of, what was the old Freakazoid F-Troop thing? Like, Agorn's like, I'm not wearing a dress. And they go, Boo! and then he's wearing a dress. So that's kind of... You mean a Gilligan cut? Yeah, it's it's literally a Gilligan cut almost every episode. <laughs> like, don't do that, mod. I'm going to do it anyway. So this do is, it. like... Yeah, I get it. Um, well, I it's, think the, the, it's, yeah, it's the same way with I think the, the purpose of this one, though, was more... Um, he's starting to become more adult, and... Because this is where he meets the bullies. Yeah, he meets Mo and... Nick? I don't remember what the the big kid's name was. It's been ten years, I don't remember. Yeah, it's Nick. So it's Mo who is uh, Maureen, uh, and Nick uh -huh. who is a big oaf who Maureen points at people. Okay, and then... Uh, and so this is where... This is the first time where he not only stands up for himself, because he does actually stand up for himself, but he um, abuses his strengths. Like, so... This is a, this is something that every child has to learn, and it, it does a natural progression of the story. Like, but instead of like standing up to the bully and punching the bully and not you know de-escalating properly as we're all meant to learn, um, like he he goes you know graveyard psycho on him and like he scares a little bit. Fucking out of handsome. Him. You're like, all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. And so he has to have his Peter Parker moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very light way of putting it. Peter Parker never showed up in somebody's dreams and was like, man, I hope you're not afraid of spiders. So, <laughs> well, this, is a, this is one of the things that I truly liked about this book because it stuck with me. Like, Some of the dead solutions to problems are amazing. Yeah. So, like, Mo 
her a family member is a cop and they arrest Bod and he's in the cop car. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Silas and the cop runs car out. Hits the man, and it turns out to be the vampire who freaks out the cop and kidnaps Bod back home to a graveyard. That's not even just, that's not even the best part. So like Bod the entire time is like, you just killed my dad. Boy, this is gonna look really shitty for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's just gonna be like <laughs> and it's tuesday and then they're just like we warned you yeah and like and then mrs owens gives him a hug because she's a very two-dimensional character and scene like and it, it was such a funny thing he was like oh no you killed my dad oh wait mo marine <laughs> is your niece man this is gonna look real coincidental <laughs> oh man and then I, I think I honestly don't think there's anything more to say about chapter six. Now he runs into there's a conversation he has I think towards the end of this one that I think is important. Um, let me see if I can find it again. Because um, I think this is where he talks to Liza again. Um. I don't know. I guess not. Um. So like he sort no, of has. Liza can back like liza doesn't come back uh till the end yeah now that we're looking at it scarlet comes back scarlet comes back next chapter oh that's right that's right so yeah so every man jack is sort of the chapter seven this is the come home so this is so no every man jack is every man jack is the climax of the story yeah like everybody's in the same everybody ends up back in the same spot and things take a turn except silas is out of town at that point so is is miss lupesi lupesi yes well, he needs, so, I mean, Miss, for storytelling purposes, they need to be out of town. Yeah. Yes. Them taking out Jack is not the solution. So you find mm-hmm. out that Silas is part of an honor guard who apparently guards these weird borders. And every member of the honor guard is just some weird monstrous thing, which is a callback to what we were talking about in the beginning. So there's right. uh, vampire, ifrit, mummy... Werewolf. werewolf. Wow, I couldn't remember the word for werewolf there. Why wolf? Why wolf? There yeah, this is also like this is when at the beginning of this chapter is when Bod finds out because he starts talking to his parents. He finds out about Jack, um, and he finds out that uh, Silas didn't kill Jack, even though Silas could have. Um, yeah, and this yeah. kind of calls back to what we're talking about: how the monsters aren't the bad guys. Like, yeah, this is when this is the one time his mom chastises it's, him, it, and she says, "Because Silas isn't a monster." Yeah, like, yeah. Which is, I think it's implied that Silas used to be like that. Oh, he says <laughs> it himself at the end of the book. Yeah. Um. So then Scarlet shows back up because her parents got divorced, so her mom moved back into town. No, no, so her mom and her are still in Scotland. And they had no. ju- I think they had just recently, like, it was very, very fresh. Like, they'd been in town very, very shortly. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, I've, yeah, yeah. Um, and she meets one of the Jacks. No, she meets a charming man named Mr. Frost who wants to get with her mom. Which is, yeah. that was a, <laughs> that's a recurring theme for Gaiman, because this also happens in... <laughs> in American uh, Gods. In American, American the, Gods. It also is, happens at uh, the ocean at the end of the lane. Like, people yeah. are just fucking people's parents. Well, I, well, I was more talking about, like, the name, the name reveals, like, the, like, the, the meaningful name reveals, like... <laughs> Low key Lie Smith. <laughs> I think yeah. that 
that killed me the first time I read it. But in this one, I was just like, oh my god, why? Why have you done like, it? like, if there was anything that 15-year-old Derek rolled his eyes at, it was, of course, his name, of course his name is Mr. Frost. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to save us all, and let's not get into the MILF conversation for this particular book. Um, Too late. And, and it does, in fact... Apparently, Scarlet's mom that, is banging. We didn't know. Um, she is from Scotland. Um, so... 50-50. Mr. Frost is, you know, it, it turned out to be one of the Jacks. Jack Frost on the off chance for the past hour you have caught on. <laughs> yeah, in case we didn't foreshadow that enough. <laughs> um... And all of the jacks are there, and they use Scarlet to kind of pull Bod out into the open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Bod and Scarlet meet, and uh, and then we find out that Scarlet's not going to have a new stepdad. Uh, uh, <laughs> and then spoiler for the next couple couple minutes of talk, uh, and then at the end of the Scarlet's going to bail on him again. Oh, my heart. Um, like, so, yeah, they, at the end, so, I forget exactly how he beats all the other Jacks, except for Jack Frost. He drops he, three of them in the ghoul graveyard, so you can uh, open the ghoul graveyard, and it's it's its own little inner space. So he just yeah, drops three of them off in there, drops one of them in, like, an eight-foot grave, where he breaks both of his ankles. Um... No, he hides Scarlet in the Sleer stairs. Yes, that's yes, how he then, traps the rest. And, and then he's like, yeah, I'm your master, the Sleer, and <laughs> he uses the Sleer to kill the No, no, so that's, that's not what happens. That's how it ends. No, so, no, he goes in, and he, he trips tra- he trips at all, or he traps all the other Jacks, except for the man Jack. And when he gets back to Scarlet, Jack has picked up the knife, and he has it at her throat. And this is the knife from the grave, the Sleer Correct. hideout. All right. Mm-hmm. And then in a very a Cthulhu-esque episode, um, Bod tells the Sleers that Jack is their master and snakes come out, coil around him. No, no. So we have, we have to take a moment here because the actual description for this monster is fucking intense. So they okay, are you go right ahead. They're described <laughs> as snakes with human faces that have been dead for a really long time. So they're skeleton-faced snakes. And if that imagery doesn't fuck with you, you you got some guts. Like that thing, like the way they describe it is terrifying. <laughs> so like and this is and then of course, now that it's all over, Silas shows back up. Um hey, in hey. in tip in typical teenage fashion, like Percy doesn't. Percy Jackson does not get his his Olympian. Scarlet is freaked out by this whole thing and blames him for saving her, and then moves yeah. to Glasgow. Yep. Like, hey, like, by and, the way, that shit was fucked up. And uh, for anyone, any any male who had who had a reasonably decent uh, relationship with his father, you'll you'll probably have a connection to this. Uh, after this is all over, Silas shows back up well after you could have used the help and takes him out for pizza. <laughs> Yeah. So there's there's a there's a little bit of run back. So yes. uh Silas you find out is the honor guard and him and Miss Lupesu and the mummy uh Miss Lupesu and the Ifrit. Well the Ifrit's is kind of doing I, its own thing in a mirror. But so You Ms. have literally said the Ifrit more often than he is in the book. Exactly. Like that's he is a pay, he is a, a three words <laughs> in the book. So Yeah, I know. <laughs> You end up there. Like they've Ifrit. been going around to all of the man, the, the jack of all trades 
hideouts and killing them. Yep. So while this mm -hmm. whole story is going on, Miss Lubescu dies because she has apparently murdered a bunch of jack shit. Yeah. So Silas comes back post this, and he's like, hey, your tutor's dead. Sorry, buddy. Let's go get pizza. <laughs> <laughs> like you do. It's a very Simpsons-esque moment when he's just like, hey, you want to go <laughs> get a pie? It's just fucking let's, weird. He's like, let's, <laughs> go I, all, let's all go like, out for chocolate milkshakes. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's like, I, I had to kill several men, and I, I Cthulhu'd one of them, and now the only girlfriend I've ever known, because she's the only <laughs> woman I've ever seen, uh, she's left That's me. That's not dead. To go to Glasgow, and he's like, pepperoni? Yeah. And so, like, Silas takes her home, and he kind of wipes her and her mom's memories of the events. And they're all Correct. happy, and Bod's like, that's fucked up. And Silas is like, shut up, you little, you little shit, this is your fault. Which is, like, again, say, the running like, theme it, in this book. My, well, that's actually like, my personal favorite, because it's, hey, let's, I'm going to wipe their memories so they don't remember all the bad stuff. So you're going to wipe their memories so they don't want to leave? No. They're not going to remember you. Yeah, they're, yeah. I'm going to wipe their memory so they want to go back. There's a lot of God. interesting, like, moral questions that this book raises up. Like, Bod killing, like, Bod didn't directly kill any of the Jacks, but he still... When you sentence more, someone to death yeah. indirectly, it's still a yeah, death Yeah, more sentence. or less did. And granted, and I don't think she was being entirely fair, because... <laughs> They were trying to kill him, like, and they, they killed tried to a lot kill of people. Her. Yeah, too. Yeah. No, I think that. I mean, regardless of whether, like, yes, is he guilty of their deaths? Absolutely. Um, like, however, self-defense, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he stood. Like, he stood his ground. Yeah. Like, if I had the ability to call forth a whole bunch of undead, and you came at me with a knife. Well, you're probably going to get skeleton fisted. What do you guys? Yeah, it's like you you came to the wrong knife fight, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> Why didn't you bring skeleton a skeleton to your knife fight? Like, yeah. Now you know. <laughs> um, Benefits uh, of being a necromancer, part two. Yeah. <laughs> and that and uh and so now the threat to Bod is gone forever. Um, and Bod. Oh, and and we do find out that at some point Bod was some part of some ancient pre-Babylonian prophecy where he would bring down the jack-of-all-trades. So that yeah. means nothing. So moving on. He yeah, was which, the boy who lived. Yeah. yeah, Which really was truly Harry Potter. Um, however, oh, damn it. In, in, everyone, <laughs> in everyone's defense, this was written before that book came out. Um, <laughs> so I don't like, know if that's fair. Like, the prophecy being the part that made him part of the prophecy, like, so, eh, uh, it's yeah, tropey. <laughs> it really has nothing to do with anything. It isn't even really discussed. Like, it's just kind of there. And that's not, in, in fairness, it's not important. Like, that's the thing. It's 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 not even really, uh, like, I, like, it's not even really brought up because it's not important in the end. What is important is about, is about Bod coming of age. That's the... That is I the think, crux. Of, that's the crux of the book. I honestly think it's there because he was like, "All right, I have all my short stories put together, and I have built an entire story. I'm so proud of myself. I should write the ending." <laughs> and then, like, and then, he, and then, like, he's about to write chapter eight, and then he's like, "Wait, why did the dude show up to murder everyone in the beginning?" <laughs> oh, well, and and like, um, yeah, <laughs> like, the, a prophecy, chapter eight. 
Well, yeah, the the first the thing about it is like it is even when I was reading it the first time, I was like, oh well, you know, like that that murderer doesn't show up again for a while. Like, uh, like I guess he wasn't, and then like the the convocation of Jacks happens, and I'm like, oh, all right, yeah, that was still the, gonna be there. And the murderer doesn't show up because at the end of chapter one, the wealthy brewer is like, you don't remember any of this. He fucking you know, Jedi mind tricked him. It was such a weird thing. Was it was it Josiah or was it Silas? Because he just no, Josiah. everybody. I think it's Josiah. Josiah is the one who throws him out, and Josiah goes, "You'll never remember." And <laughs> like, and that's it. And like, How do you so like an entire like city block. That's what I, I don't know. Like, does he just walk past it and go, "Man, I wonder what's there." Like, well, I don't know. How does, how does a brewer get that ability? Because <laughs> like, they make it a big point that Josiah was a brewer. He's been dead for 300 years, and I guess he's just been practicing, what, like, mind control? I mean, uh, he used to get people drunk, a... I get it. Look, look, if you give ghosts enough hit die in Pathfinder, they get all kinds of weird abilities. <laughs> he's, just right. been, he's just been stewing for a long time. Brewing for a and, long time. Um, and so, Chapter 8 is, uh, is leaving some partings. This is set at, he's 15 or 14 or 15? 15. I think it ends at 15. Okay, so he's 14 or 15. Yeah, 15. Um, and uh, Silas being he the gives him a, yeah, He gives <laughs> him a briefcase of money, a pat on the ass, and a passport. And says, well, you're on your own. <laughs> here's a suitcase, here's some money, here's a passport, and uh, you can't come back. So here's, also, here's also, the yeah. thing about this that gets me. So he's like, hey, I'm going to give you some money. He goes, how much? He goes, enough to make a life and nothing more. And you're like, I don't know how much money that is because that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Like he's yeah. even he's either given the dude bus fare or he's given him a small fortune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, I mean, Silas has been buying food for a while, and he seems reasonably uh, world traveled. I assume he's probably got you know a couple thousand dollars. He's probably got somewhere around. I would guess well, a very low like, six he... figure. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a, his his suitcase is heavy. <laughs> yeah, like it's just Why here's a bag here's a bag of money. Mom? Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. <laughs> um. So now, uh, Jordan, check me if I'm wrong on this, but he finds out when he's going through. Like he there's a there's a quote from it where he like he tries to stick his head through stuff and he slams his face first he into like a coffin headbutts, yeah. uh he actually headbutts a gravestone okay and, and so this is the he knew and this is the part that's weird like this is chapter eight losing the power of being able to go into physical things yeah this is the first we find out he yeah we this is the first we found out he had intangibility but this is when he loses it at the end of the book yeah, which is which is a very odd. It's a very odd numbering of the beast, so to speak. You're like, oh man, Bod's yeah. like you. So he scares, he haunts the fucking school kid. Silas oh, jumps yeah. in front of a car, and you're like, oh, there wasn't really anything crazy about that. And then you get, and Bod at the very end of the book goes, yeah, I used to be able to walk through walls and shit. And you're like, what? Yeah, Why can't exactly. You do that at any time. Yeah, like <laughs> I feel now... like half of the problems you got into could have been solved by I don't know walking through a fucking wall. Well, like he could, he could literally like, oh, that that jack guy's going after me. Like fall through the center of the earth yeah. and pop out the other side. Oh my God, <laughs> man, I'll just wait down here. Um, 
Like one of us will outlive the other. Good luck. (laughs) Now I'm in China. Come get me. He's gonna have a lot of. He's gonna have a lot of therapy bills. I hope Silas should have given him more money. (laughs) Well, and like what 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 really galls me is that he has you know he has a little bit of like formal education, quote unquote. He but he he hasn't really had any like human friends other than Scarlet who doesn't like even remember him and like like Silas just like eh you'll be fine. <laughs> uh. Well, I mean the thing like there are a couple of things that I really like about how the journey goes. So at the end of it, Silas is like here's a passport, here's a briefcase full of money, and this is really the setup for Pulp Fiction. I don't know if anybody else has gotten that yet. (laughs) (laughs) We literally talked about it. Yeah, like, this is, we are, you are getting the prequel to Pulp Fiction in a very roundabout way, in case anybody was curious. And then he's like, hey, you can't come back, you're gonna lose all your graveyard powers, and you're you're all sort of gonna forget about each other. And then he's like, well, where are you going? He goes, I don't know, Transylvania or some shit. And he's like, okay, I guess that makes sense. And then they both kind of part ways out into the wild, which is fine, I guess. Yeah, the book just kind of ends. <laughs> well, that's... It, it doesn't end. Like, it ends exactly where you think it should. It's just not... Well, it's it ends with the coming... It, again, this is a coming-of-age book. It, it is about a... It is, in the end, not about a serial killer who's trying to kill you, Eldritch Abominations, or, like... Um, you know, the undead. It's really about just finding your place in the world. And Bod still doesn't quite know where that is, but he's grown. He is, you know, he is now a a grown man for the sake of our for the sake of our um, plot here. And leaving leaving the graveyard, having learned much in his time, is what this is really about. He All is right. no longer. If I have yeah. any, if I have any moral of the story, he didn't learn dick. Because he keeps <laughs> fucking up throughout the entire goddamn book. And then at the end, when he's like, oh, wait a second, I have all these cool undead powers. And then he goes, why do I scare people? So you're uh, honestly like, okay. There's let's a little bit of hyperbole about... there. Yeah. Well, even more than that. Okay, so the the very end of this book is something like, between now and then there was life and Bad walked into it with his eyes and mm-hmm. hearts forever wide open. Um, but... Like at the end of that book, or at the end of the chapter, she when he's saying goodbye to his mother, like she sings him the song that she sang at the very, very beginning again, right? And mm-hmm. I'm well, gonna look. She finishes this, it this time too, right? So, but like if you go back and you go to the song, like the song is the book, like, yep. And like and like that song is it's something. I mean that that thing's been like stanzas of this have existed for hundreds of years so i mean he literally this really is the stanzas of how he become he learns how to put together multiple stories in an arc right so it's like uh sleep my little baby oh sleep until you've waken when you're grown you'll see the world if i'm not mistaken kiss a lover um so he kisses um liza and that's your weird scene Dance a measure, dance macabre. Find your name, like he finds out who he is. Bury treasure, he gets the three treasures from the sling. Face your life, it's pain, it's pleasure, leave no path untaken. Like, and so it's quite literally, get the hell out of my house. 
Yeah. <laughs> you ain't gotta go um, home, but fuck off. Um. So here's a question for you. Do you think that the Owens, because the reason that they had stayed is because they had never had a child, do you think that they fade out now? Yeah, I mean, it's very specifically implied that... Well, it's, it's also, he just stops being able to see, like, the well, undead. Yeah, you don't know if, from his point of view, if they're gone. But they also sort of ruminate about that through different chapters of the book, that they're only here because of some grave undoing, like something that wasn't done. Which, for so most finally, of them, you don't know. They're finally satisfied. Yeah, so I think it's, yeah. I think it's a good measure. I think, like, they do the, the Whoopi Goldberg ghost, Patrick Swayze fade out, you know, is, <laughs> is pretty okay. Like, it makes sense. Um, and honestly, the book has a lot of very... Um, so, like, the, the song itself is the book. Like, it's almost chapter mm-hmm. for chapter per stanza. And there are a lot oh, of absolutely. really, really good quotes in this book. Um, so at one point it's like, you're always you and that doesn't change and you're always changing and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's a really deep thing for a 15 year old reading this book to try to like chew on. Yeah. Like, don't, uh, don't call me out like that, Jordan. <laughs> and so, but it does, it does allow a young, a reader to come into these concepts safely. Um, but it, it does force them to so, think about it. And yeah. its chances are pretty good that there is something about this book that stuck with you. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Well, the coming-of-age story, there's two different audiences for it. There's the the children or, you know, teenagers who read it and try to put it into perspective as, okay, well, this is how somebody grows up. This is, you know, what can I take from this? And there are adults who read the read a coming of age story and try to track and see what kind of person they become. At least that's how I'm going to break. That's how I'm going to at least try to tackle this as a reading. So I think for, I think what this book does really well is it is simultaneously, I think very frank and about the really kind of, you know, uh, the tricky, the, about tackling the tricky part of growing up you know feeling like you don't you know you might not relate to people or you don't have a um or you you might have had a weird upbringing different from everybody else like that's what i think the book does hit on for the coming of age aspect so let's talk a little bit of symbolism because i think that'll be fun yeah because you know we haven't we haven't done other crazy things yet. Um, so, I was looking up the I was looking up some of his award ceremonies on this, and I just enjoy listening to Neil Gaiman tell his stories because everything he does, whether it's a speech acceptance or anything else, I, that um, dude could read a phone book for three hours and I'd watch it. But yeah, he he does. He ends up building stories and everything. So all of his acceptance speeches are these little stories. Um, and I noticed a common theme to several of his acceptance stories where he talks about, um, and this is in his charity and his passion projects as well, but he talks about the importance of reading and libraries. Um, so as such, I will throw to you the allegory or the symbolism that the graveyard is mm-hmm. a library 
and that each of these chapters is one of these crypts is a book within the library. Oh, yeah, I didn't really think about it, but that's pretty cool. Um, and it makes sense for, I mean, if you know the author, it makes sense because our particular author likes to do that kind of stuff. Um, and then all of a sudden you start looking at each of the symbolism. Like if you look at everything else as a headstone or as a, as a library and everything else within it as a book, like Lisa's headstone, like is a um, journey of redemption. Um, like the Sleer's den with the brook, the knife and the cup. Um, like as much as they look loyal, like it's the, um, it is the folly of uh, overzealous greed. So the the long running thing is that every story in itself represents a completely different form of either feeling or literature, which is yeah. still pretty impressive. Right. And so it pulls in, right? So the the dance macabre is folklore. Like there's a lot going on in there, and now all of a sudden, Bod isn't just a anti Mary Sue where he fails at everything, but <laughs> um, like he is the narrator or the witness that allows the story to continue. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I like him well, being like the anti Mary Sue better, but I, I get why this is the important thing to take away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a lot of weight there. Like, he spent... The witness is always the important part. The narrator is always the important part, reliable or not. And in this one, you find out that he's not a great narrator because there are blocks that he just doesn't know. Um, but you also sort of learn that information at the same time he does. Um, well, no, I guess there are a couple of moments that are sort of out of book, like the Jack convention and that kind of stuff, where you're just like, here's a... There is a... There is a third. There is a third-person narrator. The yeah. trick is that he's mostly, if we're if we're taking film terms, he's got his camera pointed on Bod's shoulder for most of the entire yeah book. Yeah, he's certainly not an omniscient narrator. Um, no, I mean, and they let you fall for the like the same Pratt falls that Bod falls fall, which I falls for, which I think is good storytelling at the end of the day, like foreshadowing once you figure it out obviously sucks but i don't think there was a point where this was too far up its own narrative no well no. and again like i i laugh it's you know we laugh at stuff like the it's a good thing she taught him how to shriek in a bunch of different languages because it was exactly the thing that was going to be important or um or jack frost but you know it's there's never a point where I think it goes too far. Well, it's it's uh, there's never a point where I think it it goes into lazy writing. And I think what's I think part of that is because it strikes a very good tone of there's a there's a there's a great deal of seriousness with regards to growing up, but there's there's a lot more looseness in the you know oh everybody's dead there's vampires and stuff running around you know there's a certain amount of weirdness that is just accepted. And as much tropism as there is in this, um, it is also set for that, that genre, that, that, that age category, right? Yeah. hundred um, percent. Tropes exist for a reason. Um, and so like overall, what do you guys think of the book? I would put it personally, and I say this with a lot of affection, 
probably towards the bottom of my Neil Gaiman like like favorites is not it like I there's I would probably go back and reread just about anything before coming back to this one just because I there there's really not I feel like to me a lot to come back to but for what there is there I do really enjoy this book and I think that it is a probably the single most like of all his books the most that I would recommend to anybody else who wanted to like give him a try um so being the the most recent read and it's the freshest on my mind um the book is fine like as long as you look at it as its general audience um it's a really good book i'm not going to compare it to gaiman's other works because they all do very different things Um, it's probably not it's probably not fair to compare it yeah i mean it doesn't it doesn't serve the same purpose like this has a very Mm -hmm. strict direct reason for existing and it's not i mean all of his works really do that thing differently um as far as like oh go ahead um in that in defense of that though um here's kind of where i lay out on this if you enjoy other neil gaiman books you'll and you're going you won't regret reading it you're not going to think it's one of your best um but a couple years from now you'll be able to talk about it and you will it will have something in it for you where you will remember it fondly for that i i agree with that 100 percent. like it is a good step in the game and if you haven't really gotten in there and like i said this is this is an afternoon in the rain kind of book like it's 140 pages you're gonna burn through it pretty quick but it's got some moments in it that are kind of like thought provoking like uh like is scarlet's mom really that hot uh but like the, the book itself is it's really well done like it's not like, obviously, I'm not reading a whole lot of young adult novels right now, and really the only reason we're broaching this one is because it's Neil Gaiman. Like, we talked about it. We did it. Um, and of all the writers out there, Terry Pratchett accepting, this is probably who we're going to come back to again and again. Yeah. Over the yeah, of the show. As much as it's, cra- cause it's crazy as that sounds, like, if you don't know who Neil Gaiman is, if you look through his list of works... You do know who Neil Gaiman is. You're like you're gonna go. Oh, he wrote that. Like, um, yeah. There, there's he, a lot he's of just part of pop culture now. Yeah, which is impressive. I, he's slowly. I really feel like he's slowly. I, he's not like the kind of thing like everybody knows J.R.R. Tolkien or everybody knows uh, Douglas uh, Adams, J.K. J.K. Yeah, Rowling. Um, but I think you know eventually we might almost get to that point. And what it is, and um. I do, and for the most part, uh, the adaptations of his books that we've come across have been very good. They've been trying to make an adaptation of the Graveyard Book for at least 10 years, and have, or not 10 years, well, close enough at this point. Supposedly, there's been one one in the works for like the last eight or nine years, and it never fully got off the ground. Well, I mean, they've been trying to make um, good omens since the 90s, so I get it. Yeah. Well, that's also just because it's it's just funny about about finding the right people. They were going to do an Anansi Boys book, and then Neil Gaiman was like, "Hell no!" When they said that they weren't going to cast any black actors in it. Um, you know, there's I don't think there's been maybe a lot of good faith like examples of it 
we've never gotten like a Sandman like film or there's anything like no that. There's no way to do that in any amount of justice. So that is a very there, long there's probably solid not day. a satisfying way to do it. That's yeah, fair. I think, no, I think Sandman is absolutely doable, um, but it needs to be done not as a movie, but a la yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, that, it's the only way you could approach it. It would have to be serial based. Like you would have to do it over a period a ser- of time. a serial convention yeah serial convention. <laughs> <laughs> um and i think um there if, there is if, actually a line in this book that really brings like the idea that neil gaiman is a part of pop culture and it's everything in its time like he's when did he start sandman it was 80 89 was it 89 no yeah it was so, like the end like of you're the talking 80. a guy who has been at least cursorily along the realm of media and in in the know for 30 years before people are like, when did he get really popular? Like a lot of people have him. It's like Tim Curry. Like what, what was your first Tim Curry movie? Everybody generally has a different answer. Most people say Rocky Horror Picture Show. And everybody's kind of okay with the answer. They're like, that's good. Like nobody, Um. nobody's going to look at it and go, uh, like, so Neil Gaiman is kind of one of those authors who like, you're never going to look at and go, like you can't judge another person for running into a book differently. Like, like Derek never having read through all of Sandman doesn't bother me because I hope he does one day because it is an insanely deep ride and it, it you really bring a lot of life. Sandman, like Sandman's really great from what I've read. It's just a matter of getting them all. <laughs> yeah, I mean I've I've got all of them digitally, so if you want them, you can get them. But just walking it back, so it literally is everything in its time. Like Neil Gaiman has sort of gone through his seasons. He's grown, uh, albeit later in his life, um, to be mostly popular. Like, American Gods has a TV show. Good Omens is coming out. People are revisiting all of his books constantly. Like, they pop up on top reads all the time. Uh-huh. So it, it really is sort of not immortalized, but, like, the Graveyard book sort of teaches you that. Like, it, it is a weird lesson that you walk away from that's an odd commentary on the author itself. Yeah, I would not recommend this to be your first Neil Gaiman book, but if you find yourself to be a no, uh, I, I, fan of I, Neil Gaiman, read it. I, I, I'll disagree in that I think this is a good gateway drug. I think this is a good like this is a good starting point, especially for younger readers. And I think this is a very good like for younger uh, I readers. That, I will agree. Um, yeah, I, if you're an if adult, you're, if you're like if you're like above the age of I don't know eighteen. There's other things you could grab that would probably be better suited, but yeah, I think sub that, and I think like you know if you're a parent who's uh trying you know who's trying to find stuff to read to their kids or you know provide you know, I think this is a good choice. I I think Coraline is while a book that I love dearly. It is it is maybe it is maybe not quite all the way it is maybe not quite all the way there as an intro. It's a little intense. <laughs> This is a little intense too. Yeah, uh, but... well, like, well, like the thing about Coraline is, I think it's supposed to be scarier to adults than it is to children. Yeah. Like, I think, I think that this particular book, uh, I mean, if you're reading to your kid, this might not be it. This is probably like, you're not going to feel bad reading it, and you're going to know when it's okay for your kid to read it, right? So, you you have introduced your child to other things, Coraline maybe being one of them, um, and then. <laughs> Because you've read it to them, and then when they're starting to get to the point where they can read something, this is a book that is easily broken down. Um, it's very approachable to a younger audience. Um, 
it does have mature themes, but it takes care of them in a way that a younger person isn't going to be afraid of um, and isn't going to be overly scared by. So this is an excellent introduction to reading for a young adult audience where it doesn't pander to them and it also doesn't talk down to them. So I think this is a great book for that. Um, in the same tradition, and I'm going to probably be wholesale lifting this from some other source, part of why the Jungle Book has kind of survived in popular consciousness is that it is a book aimed at a younger audience that, like you said, doesn't talk down to them and is kind of scary and kind of, you know, weird and has un... and, you know, doesn't, like, it isn't very moralized. It, you know, it it talk, it kind of prepares kids for the adult world. I think this is kind of a similar... I think this is kind of, this is, it, you know, befitting the befitting what else is lifted from the jungle book this is in a similar spot yeah i i don't so like closing words just because we are running up on on the hour and a half oh we're we're we are now uh feature length uh, we are now feature length uh, yeah the the episode has now made its first movie Um, if (laughs) instead of actually having this conversation you had been reading the book you would have finished it yeah (laughs) yeah i mean if, even if you're a mod, uh, a modicum reader, like you probably would have finished the book by the time we got through here. But um, it's a good, well, it's a good read. Yeah. It's fun. It approaches its reader with a certain sense of maturity. Like you're not, you're expecting the child or the young adult to understand the topics you are giving them, and it doesn't, it doesn't treat them like a kid. Like it is dark. There are some moments in here that are like, that was fucking spooky. Uh, the Sleer is terrifying. Like, I don't give a shit who you are. <laughs> like, they describe that thing, and it's just like, all right, well, I don't ever want to fucking go to sleep again. Uh, but it handles the, the themes very approachably. And, yeah, like, there are some weird moments like, oh, man, Jack Frost was totally going to get in on Scarlet's mom. Or, like, <laughs> okay. hey, by the way, the witch ghost is almost nude, and she's totally aching for you. Like they have these weird moments that are sort of Gaiman-esque. Like, he does that in a lot of his books. Yeah, that was the... uh, When we get to American Gods, I'll talk about it more, but the way American Gods opens is was like the most scandalous thing when I was a fucking when I was reading it for the first time. Oh, yeah, who knew you were going to get a blowjob from an Ifrit, man? Things took a turn. Not even that. I know. (laughs) What about the woman who eats somebody with her vagina? Yeah, it's, uh, anyway, <laughs> just so you know, Neil Gaiman gets wild. <laughs> News at 11. Neil Gaiman, as they say, goes there. It's, it's a quote-unquote very lit literature, fam. That's my bad joke for the night. No, they've all been bad. Yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> so, all right, so I think, I think it's, a it's three people saying, yes, go ahead and give this one a try. Yeah, I mean, even as an adult, you're gonna, you will pull something from it. Yeah, and you won't regret reading it either. No, it's a, it's a quick, fun read. I mean, even if you're in your 30s and bored and pooping, it'll be a good read. It is It is probably a pretty solid bathroom reader. You almost made it without you talking about poop. Hey, this is the first time I've actually talked about poop. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to say that because somebody's going to call me out on it. I don't know if it's true. I'm relatively sure it's true. I don't think, I don't think, he, I don't think he's done it yet in the... Uh... In the podcast, so if we need if we need like a, a bell marker somewhere during the episode, we'll do it. But I, I think that's the first time. 
<laughs> so go read it. Have a good time. Um, so Jordan and Derek here signing off, and uh, Adam will return. Um, we we have a set of cameos prepared. Uh, Adam will return in uh, Avengers College, <laughs> Infinity War. Endgame, yes. <laughs> <laughs> good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.